Good morning. Today's scripture reading will be found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting at verse 16, and I'll be reading to the end of the chapter. In your pew Bibles, that will be on page 990. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. In It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. All right, turn back with me, please, to Second uh, Thessalonians. And uh, you'll, be, you'll be turning there today. I won't say for the last time, because I want you to keep turning uh, back to Thessalonians, but this... This is our last sermon in this series. We've come to the end of this letter, and thus we've come to the conclusion of our study of Paul's correspondence with the Thessalonians. And I don't know about you, but I have thoroughly enjoyed these letters. Uh, it's, re- it's really refreshing to read these letters, to read about the faith of a newly formed church. Uh, it's always exciting to be around baby Christians, and in a sense, in dealing with the Thessalonians, that's exactly who we're around, and uh, what a joy that is. And we've seen something not just about their faith, but also about their hope and about their love, um, these things that spring from their faith in Christ. Over the course of what it's been, what, five months and uh, something like eight chapters, we've covered a lot of territory. You know, we've uh, time-traveled back into the past and then into the present, and we've looked a lot into the future as we've developed our theology, as perhaps we've challenged our eschatology. And most importantly, I think, we've learned an awful lot about practical Christianity, about what Christian living looks like in the day-to-day, about what sanctification (laughs) ought to look like as we live out our lives. Now, coming to the end of a sermon series is always bittersweet for me. Uh, you know, I, I always feel like I've, I've come to know and love these believers and uh, to understand something of their struggles, and, and you don't really want to say goodbye just yet. So you can imagine how the Apostle Paul felt. You know this from his letters that he's dying to, to be with them face to face. He's been prohibited from that. And he's had to be content with writing them these letters. And no doubt there's so much more that he would want to say that he would be able to say if he had the time and if he had the space. But now it's time for him to sign off. And the question is, how do you sign off? You know, what do you, what do, you do? What do you say when this may be the last time that you communicate with these Christians? You've you got to believe that what we find in this sign-off section is going to be super important, just, just from that context alone. Uh, whatever he's going to write here is going to be the stuff that he believes is of utmost Importance. It might just seem to you, I don't know if you got this sense when Noah was reading it, it might seem to you that this is kind of just a standard, simple closing section. 
this might be the kind of section that you'd be tempted to just glaze over in your daily Bible reading. But actually, this portion is pretty profound. And there's really two parts to it. There's a benediction and there's a signature. Now, in our time this morning, we're going to be focusing on the benediction. That's where we want to spend most of our attention. But I want to just say a few things at the outset here about the signature. Okay, if you were in Thessalonica reading this original letter that came to you, you would see that the handwriting changes when you get to verse 16. And from verse 16 till the end, there's a different kind of handwriting. Maybe it's bigger letters. Maybe it's, you know, darker where the, the person's bearing down a little differently. And most likely what, what's happened is that Paul has dictated these letters, and not just these ones, but all of his letters. It seems like his pattern was that he would dictate these letters, and they were written down by Sylvanus or Timothy or maybe some unnamed secretary. But in this closing section, Paul picks up the pen, takes the pen from that person, to give his own personal greeting. And if you were reading the original, you'd see Paul's John Hancock at the beginning of verse 17 there. Now, I've, I've actually got a buddy named John Hancock. He's part of the Reformation Society, and uh, that society, by God's grace, always has new people attending it. So I often get to introduce new people to my friend John Hancock and without fail I mean this without fail people will make some kind of crack about his signature and uh, you know they'll be under the illusion that that they're the first person that's ever come up that no way he's heard that joke before it's actually really fun to watch but anyway I'm, I'm getting off on a bit of a tangent you know that that's probably one of the most well-known pieces of Americana, American folklore, that John Hancock's signature is the first and most prominent one on the Declaration of Independence. And similarly, the Apostle Paul could say about his own handwriting in Galatians chapter 6, he says, see what large letters I write to you in my own handwriting? Now, the story goes that John Hancock signed the declaration that way for a particular purpose. You know, it was a sort of act of defiance towards King George III so that he could, and, and the quote is, read my name without spectacles. It was sort of a dig. And likewise, Paul is signing his name with a purpose, not a patriotic one, but a pastoral one. Again, verse 17, he says, It is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It's the way I write. And it might not be immediately apparent to you why that is a pastoral thing for him to do and say until you recall the discussion at the beginning of chapter 2. Do you remember that? Remember that the Thessalonians were in danger of falling for the false teaching that would say that the day of the Lord has already come and that you've missed it. 
And apparently one of the reasons that the Thessalonians were falling for that nonsense was that they had received some sort of correspondence, some sort of spoken word, probably some sort of letter purportedly from Paul to that effect. But it was, it was obviously a fake. It was a forgery. If you've ever watched the show Pawn Stars, you'll know that many people come into the gold and silver pawn shop looking to sell rare autographed memorabilia. And the problem is that a lot of that kind of stuff is fake. And so, you know, Rick and the old man, they're, they're good businessmen, so they, they, they don't want to get stuck with a fake. So before they buy the thing, they bring in an expert to authenticate the signature. And that expert comes in with a couple of items, usually a magnifying glass, and usually uh, an example of a signature of that person that is, without a doubt, the genuine article. And with the magnifying glass, they can compare the authentic signature against the one that is in the shop that particular day, the one that's been, you know, says that it's signed by Jesse James or Babe Ruth or whomever. Now, if you get that kind of a thing wrong on a baseball card, it might cost you, you know, a few thousand dollars, maybe a few ten thousand dollars. But if you get that wrong, if you get doctrine wrong, it might cost you your soul. Paul's pastoral heart is seen in how he gives them his signature as a genuine example by which they could test all other correspondence. And, and behind all of this, of course, is his concern that they would hold fast to this apostolic tradition that they have received from, from Paul and Silas and Timothy, and that they wouldn't be swayed in any way by any kind of cheap imitation that might come down the pike. Now, 2,000 years later, Christians are faced with the same danger. I think you, you probably know this, that there are full-scale assaults on the authenticity and the authority of Scripture. You've got the Roman Catholic Church that claims to have the authority to infallibly interpret and even to add to the apostolic tradition. If you read um, some commentaries or any kind of New Testament scholarship, it won't take you very long at all to hear the hiss of the serpent asking, has Paul really said? You know, all of these things seem to be up for grabs, up for discussion and, and doubted. And, and what shall we say about the, the global pandemic that is the prosperity gospel? It's nothing but a cheap substitute, but it is deceiving millions in many of the places that we've talked about and prayed about in Africa, in South America, deceiving its tens of thousands, its millions. So brothers and sisters, be, be encouraged and be exhorted from this handwritten line, this John Hancock, in verse 17. That, that's not just a nice little flourish at the end. This is Paul taking one last opportunity to show how crucial it is that we would guard the deposit 
that we would hold fast to the only truth that can both save us and sanctify us. The, the gospel that we first heard and received and believed, the gospel by which we were justified, that same body of truth is the means by which we are sanctified and brought safely all the way home. So hold fast to it. Could be nothing more important. Now to ha- really, I think, to help us hammer this into our hearts, the song of the month for the month of November is going to be a, a new song by City of Light called There Is One Gospel. And I'll give you a preview, okay? Here's, I think you'll like this song, and here's how the first verse goes. There is one gospel on which I stand for all eternity. It is my story, my father's plan. The son has rescued me. Oh, what a gospel. Oh, what a peace. My highest joy and my deepest need. Now and forever he is my light. I stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is, this is where we stand, brothers and sisters, and uh, so it's necessary that uh, we would guard this deposit. I hope you'll enjoy singing that song, but more importantly, I, I hope it will encourage us to hold fast to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Okay, well, that's, that's one way that Paul signs off, with a signature, but he also signs off with a benediction, and that's what I'd like for us to focus on in the time that we have remaining. This is, this is where your notes will kind of take over. We could ask, first of all, what do I mean by benediction? What is a benediction? The word comes to us from the Latin, and really it has two parts to it. Bene, meaning good, and uh, diction, which comes from the verb to speak. So to give a be- benediction, then, is to speak a good word. It's, it is a combination of well-wishing and blessing, but at its heart, I believe, it is prayer. You'll notice that the language of benediction here in these verses doesn't differ very much from the language of prayer, and that's because they are so related. It, it is, it's a sort of calling upon the Lord to do something, to give something, to be something for the person or people over whom it is spoken. That's a benediction, and that's what Paul gives here at the end. And that, that's exactly the appropriate thing to do at the end of, say, a worship service or at the end of a letter. When, when you recognize that there's only so much that you can say, there's only so much that you can do, the best thing that you can do is just to commit people into the care of the Lord. And to ask God to do for those people the things that you are ultimately unable to do for them. In a sense, then, this is, this is Paul signing his name to a declaration of dependence. This is Paul um, ultimately turning all of this over to the Lord who alone has the power to accomplish things uh, for our good and for his glory. Now, there's two main heads to this benediction, two blessings on the Thessalonians, which are, in fact, two requests of the Lord. And again, if you're taking notes, this is going to be the two main points that you can fill in, uh, some thoughts under. 
Uh, we'll spend most of our time on the first one. The benediction calls first for the peace of the Lord. The peace of the Lord. You can see that, I hope, in the first part of verse 16. Paul invokes this blessing. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. And I want to analyze this particular request from three vantage points. Okay, I don't, I don't believe that these subpoints are in your notes, so you might want to add them. Okay. A, let's look at the gift itself. B, the girth. C, the giver. The gift, the girth, the giver. Let's think first about the gift itself. What exactly is Paul asking the Lord for on, on our behalf? That he would give us peace. But what is peace? That, that word, uh, it, it has a rich history in scripture. It comes from the Hebrew word and idea of shalom, which theologians have described in various ways, but essentially as, a, as wholeness. You know, shalom occurs when everything that is broken is made whole again. When all of creation and, all, and God and man have ceased their striving and have been brought together in harmony. Um, Tim Keller uses the illustration of a garment, you know, uh, a, a piece of fabric that where all the strands are kind of woven together over and under and around each other in an unbroken relationship. That's the concept of shalom. And Paul, I think, is very perceptive that peace is the need of the hour. You could think about all sorts of things that the Thessalonians might need, but at bottom, most importantly, they need peace. We need peace. You think about what the Thessalonians were going through at the time that these letters were written, and you're in a better position now to understand these things. This will be some, this will be review. For starters, they're going through unrelenting persecution. You know, because of their newfound faith in Christ, because they had turned aside from idols to serve the living God, that instantly put them at odds with their family members, with their friends, with their neighbors, with their employers. And tremendous pressure is being brought to bear on them to turn back to idols to turn back to that regular, comfortable way of life. And under heavy persecution, these people need peace more than anything. What else is happening in Thessalonica? Well, as we've seen, that, that congregation had become quite anxious due to their lack of understanding, or at least due to their failure to remember some of the apostolic teaching about the return of Christ. And specifically, what they were worried about was their loved ones who were dying in the course of life, but they were dying before the Lord returned. And, and so these believers are, are upset and wondering, like, have my loved ones missed out on the glory of Christ's appearing? So perplexed, 
the Thessalonians desperately needed peace. Added to this was the false teaching that they had received, which we talked about a few minutes ago, saying that it wasn't just their late relatives that had missed out. The day of the Lord had already come, and consequently, believers who were still alive had also missed the train. So we understand from chapter 2, verse 2, that this caused the Thessalonians to be shaken in mind, to become alarmed and unsettled. In other words, the need of the hour was for peace, for, for their heart rate to kind of return to regular levels in the face of all of this. And then last week, we looked at another kind of live situation from this church. I think it's easy for you and me to understand how friction and how factions are not just possible, but almost inevitable when you, when you have, you know, hardworking, generous people on the one hand and slackers who are freeloading on the other hand. What, what that pot needs before it boils over is peace. And then you, you know, kind of fast forward into our own situation. You think about, you think about the life in the world out there. You know that out there, this world has no peace. I think that's probably always been the case, but previous generations were able to hide a lot of the brokenness and the chaos underneath a, a cloak of civility. But we're living at a time when, when all of those kind of props, pro, the politeness props have kind of been kicked out from under people. And, and so you can see the brokenness and, and the anxiousness for what it actually is. And that's why we see things like shootings and carjackings almost every night in Rochester. It's not even, at this point, it's not even shocking to see a fist fight break out in Wegmans. We don't even need to go to Ukraine and Russia to see devastating conflict. You know that World War III is like playing itself out in living rooms all over the country. That's out there. What about in the church? Now, when you talk about the church, you, you may be talking about a, one, the one place where politeness and Christian etiquette might be worn as a mask. But you don't have to dig around very much in people's lives to discover there's a lot of anxiety and fear and conflict. There's brokenness in our bodies. There's fractures in our families. There's incredibly difficult situations that, that people are going through that, that unsettle us and they alarm us. They throw us off. And that's just taking us individually, the stuff that's going on in your own lives, when you put all of that together into a family of believers, the, the potential for conflict increases exponentially. Think, think about what a powder keg we're sitting on when we all have different preferences and politics and we we've got our own convictions and our conventions. How, how is life together even possible, you wonder? Well, it's possible if the Lord is gracious to 
give us peace. That's the need of the hour. That's what we all individually and together stand in desperate need of. Peace. So this is what Paul prays for us. This is the blessing that he speaks over us, that he would have us receive. And I want you to notice something else about the peace that he prays for. I want you to notice the girth. It's a clunky word, I know, but I, I'm just asking you to consider how thick is the peace that we need. How, what, how, how wide are its dimensions? Look at the middle of verse 16. It says, this peace is for all times and in every way. Now, it doesn't take a Greek scholar to understand that the peace that Paul is praying for is one that would be available always and in every conceivable circumstance. There's a universal language there when you're talking about little words, all and every. That's what Paul wants for us. And I think it's at this point that we run head, headlong into some of our preconceived ideas about peace. So it's worth kind of talking about them and putting them out on the table. And these preconceived notions that we have about peace at the end of the day are unbiblical. You know, when we think about peace, just, I mean, do it. Think about it and think about what comes to mind. When you pray for peace, what are you praying for? I think so many times that what we're envisioning is that peace might move in once the difficult situation that we're presently in it, that is preventing peace has moved out. You know, so remove that terrible situation and then what comes in after that is the peace that we all love and enjoy and need. Okay, that, again, I think this is what we envision, that the difficult situation needs to be removed so that the peace will move in. And let me just use an analogy from scripture, if you don't mind. I, I think we're all very familiar with the story about Jesus calming the storm. The disciples who are seasoned fishermen, you understand, they've got a lot of hours out on the lake. They're no strangers to storms. But here they are today, freaking out, because the sea was angry that day, my friends, and in a way that they had never seen or experienced before. Never waves like that. Never wind like that. And so they're fearing for their lives, and, and they wake up Jesus, and, and they say, do something. Don't you care? You need to come back next week, because uh, our friend Pastor Reed Ferguson is going to open up that text for you. And uh, I, I imagine it will be wonderfully encouraging to you but but understand just this part of it now that the disciples want Jesus to do something and Jesus does do something he stands up and he rebukes the wind and the waves and instantly you know just by saying peace be still the sea instantly becomes like glass and we are wonderfully encouraged by the power of the Lord and all the rest. But that whole scenario fits our expectations very well. 
Okay, that, this is the kind of thing that we picture. This is what we want. The various situations in our lives, they, they cause chaos and fear. And we pray, and, and what we want is for Jesus to speak into those situations in such a way that the storm is stilled and peace reigns. And the Lord is very, very gracious to us. And many times he does that sort of a thing. We have periods of good health and fruitful ministry and loving interactions with our spouse and praise God for his goodness. But that's not, it seems to me, what Paul is praying for us. He's praying that we would experience a peace that is so girthy that it actually rules at all times in every situation. In every situation, not after every situation. So back to the analogy, you know, the picture of peace that we need to get into our minds is not the sea of glass after the storm is gone. The picture that we need to get in our minds is the picture of the master who's sleeping in the bow of the boat while the storm is raging. Do you, do you see the difference? You see, what, what you and I need is not primarily for my circumstances to change or yours. What we need is for peace to reign in the midst of those circumstances. And when you think about it, that's the much greater gift. That, that's so much more versatile, right? And not only that, but if peace... If, if the peace that we got was the peace that we envisioned, it wouldn't be much of a peace at all. You know, we, we would end up with a peace that's very easy to understand. We wouldn't be in possession of a peace that passes all understanding. We, we'd have the sort of peace that wouldn't make unbelievers even take any kind of notice whatsoever. The, the peace that we think that we want is not the kind of peace that would prompt someone to ask us to give us a reason for the hope that's within us. I want you to consider next the giver. The giver. We've kind of been working at this verse backwards, so for this you'll need to look at the beginning of verse 16. And the first thing to notice about the giver is that it is the Lord. And this is a bit out of the ordinary, even for the Apostle Paul. Usually when he prays this kind of a thing for other congregations, he appeals to the God of peace. And when he says the God of peace, he's, he's meaning the God the Father, you know, the first person of the Trinity. But here, he's appealing to the Lord. And if you track Paul's usage all through these letters that we've looked at, You'll, you'll understand that who he's talking about is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And in many ways, this, I think, is a fitting conclusion to this letter because it really fits with his high Christology, his, um, Paul's really high view of who Christ is and his divinity and his power. And... I, I hope that we never get so used to these things that we lose sight of the fact that this is an astounding claim 
even among the earliest churches, and Thessalonica was one of them, from the very beginning, churches are making this astounding statement that Jesus Christ is God. And that the Lord Jesus is equal with the Lord God. And that Jesus can be prayed to and worshipped alongside of the Lord God. If that's not true, that is utter blasphemy. And yet, Paul and his churches are very comfortable almost using those two names interchangeably. Don't, don't miss out on that. Jesus is divine. And we know that he was sent by his father essentially on a peace mission. Isaiah prophesied that this Messiah would be known as the Prince of Peace. And we understand that to mean first and foremost that he would broker peace between us and God, between sinners and a holy and righteous God. Our sin, you understand, separates us from our creator. Our, our rebellion has resulted in enmity with God. Everything is, everything is broken in this world. Shalom is elusive because, because of this primary problem that we have, we have no peace with God. How, how can we expect to have any kind of peace with other people? Or with creation. But God so loved the world that he sent his son. And Paul puts this beautifully in Colossians that God has been pleased to reconcile to himself all things through Christ. And how does he do this? By making peace by the blood of his cross. Peace, you know, we always talk about this when we talk about wars. This is going to be that war to end all wars. We've got to do violence in order to usher in peace. Well, that is certainly true when it comes to the cross. There's no peace with God apart from the shed blood of Christ on our behalf. The Lord Jesus Christ takes on all of our sin. And as a result, all of the wrath of God that is rightly coming against that sin. And he deals with it finally and fully and reconciles us to the Father so that there is nothing now between us. It's been dealt with by our Savior. Friends, this is the gospel. And this is a gospel of peace at its heart. And perhaps you're here today as someone that's never known peace. I know, I know you're searching for it. Your, your soul is going to be restless until you find it. But so far, peace has eluded you. And all you've known is brokenness and, and bitterness. Do you know that your biggest problem, your, your most fundamental relationship is between you and your creator? And you're going to have no peace on this plane if you haven't first experienced peace on this plane. You've got no peace with God. And that's why there's no wonder why you don't experience peace on other fronts. But I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to declare to you today that you can experience peace with God through faith in the peacemaker, the Lord Jesus Christ, who reconciles us to God through his life and his death and his glorious resurrection. So, friend, I, I urge you today to own your brokenness 
and to cry out to Christ today in repentance and faith. You can today have peace with God. Now, do you see how all this is working? Paul is appealing to exactly the right person. When he, when he prays for peace, he's asking the Lord of peace that the Lord himself, who is the Lord of peace, will give us peace. That's wonderful because if anyone can give you peace, it's the Lord of peace. You know, no, one, no one's asking me to help them fix their carburetors. Okay, because I know nothing about carburetors. I, I know a fair amount about the other kind of carbs, but, but I know diddly squat about carburetors. You go to an engine guy for that, okay? He's got shelves and shelves of them. I, it's a terrible analogy, I know. I don't even think they use carburetors in cars anymore, but you get the point. You need peace. The Lord of peace is able to give it in abundance. And just very quickly before we close, I, I need to say a word about the second request that this benediction makes. It doesn't just call for the peace of the Lord. It calls for the presence of the Lord. Do you see that at the end of verse 16? The Lord be with you. That, that seems like it's kind of tacked on, but that's not a throwaway line, okay? You don't just tack that on. I'm, I'm picturing that, that meme that goes, one does not merely tack on a phrase like the presence of the Lord be the Lord himself be with you do you realize what you're asking for not just you're not just asking for the gift you're asking for the giver to be present with you that that's astounding I'm I'm excited that Lord willing we're going to look at the book of Exodus beginning early in the new year and uh, one of the themes that we'll see there, something that Moses is so determined to experience and, and, and understands that it's hopeless if he doesn't, is that the Lord be with him and this people. If the Lord doesn't go before them and go with them, what, what's the point? And so you have these beautiful, these beautiful promises that are, that are just kind of hinted at all the way through, and then you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, who in his incarnation is indeed God with us. And then in his resurrection and ascension, he gives his spirit so that he would be with us. And as he ascends, as he commissions us, he says, surely I am with you even to the end of the age. Paul is praying that we would know this and experience the presence of the Lord himself. He's present in this peace that he gives, in this grace. You'll notice in verse 18, we don't have time to look at it, but just notice the parallels there between 16. It, the Lord is with us, or the Lord is to be with us, and now the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be with us. Those two are inseparable you can't have grace and peace separate from the Lord himself. And this is the blessing of this benediction is that we get to have the presence of this great peacemaking Lord within us every day, in every situation, 
in every way at all times. And you just think about, you can just brainstorm and maybe this is a good thing to do with your small group. Think about, think about the peace that that would bring you if you really realize that the Lord is with you. What would this mean if you're in persecution? It would mean something like, the Lord's with me. What, what can man do to me? I, I, I don't need to fear this situation. I, the Lord is with me. Think about the power that is yours to flee sin, to fight temptation, to, to flee Satan. You realize that in the presence of, of Jesus, the demons shrieked and squealed like pigs, and then they begged to be sent into pigs so that they wouldn't be destroyed. They, they're powerless in the face of Christ. This Christ is, is with you. This Lord is with you. Think about the ability and think about the desire that you would have to forgive others, to love others, to sacrificially serve others, to live peaceably with others, as much as it depends on you, if the Lord himself is with you. And if you are aware of that glorious presence all day long. And I don't want you to just, here's my last thing. You've been very patient. There's one difference. You know, you might think this is a common kind of uh, closing section, but when you compare it against the other things that Paul writes elsewhere, there's one difference. He, he typically says something like, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. But you notice at the end of verse 16 and verse 18, he says, the Lord be with you you all the lord the grace of our lord jesus christ be with you all the the difference there is you know i'm not just talking to you the congregation i'm talking to you all and and what i mean is that this benediction comes to each and every one of you individually you you can appropriate the the blessings and the promises and the power of these prayers and this kind of blessing in your particular circumstance, in your very life. And by, by the grace of God, I trust that you would do that today and that you would indeed experience his peace and his presence. Amen? Amen. Amen.